0: As you can see from the title of this message, Confidence in Prayer, we are going to talk this morning about the subject of prayer. And as we begin to talk about it, a question comes to my mind, that is this, what can be said about prayer that hasn't already been said? When you stop to think about it, it is one of the most confusing or at least mysterious aspects of the Christian life. On the one hand, there are statements like Psalm 115.3, which says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Those two statements, like many others in Scripture, say God is sovereign, He has an eternal plan, and He will carry out His plan. That seems to imply that things are fixed and certain and will happen in an unalterable way. On the other hand, you have a statement like James 5.16 which says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That verse, along with many others in Scripture, says that God does answer prayer And fervent prayer accomplishes much. Prayer has an effect on what happens in this life. The relationship between the certain plan of God and the effectiveness of prayer is a mystery that we cannot unravel in this life. However, just because we can't comprehend it completely doesn't mean that we should refuse to pray. Don't let your logic tie you up in knots, and become unbiblical in the way you live the Christian life. I can't explain to you how light can be both particles and waves, but it is. Yet I don't sit around in the dark just because I can't understand it. In the same way, I don't stop praying just because I can't comprehend how the effectiveness of prayer fits with the unalterable plan of God. The fact is, there are a number of passages of Scripture that tell us we ought to pray. Jesus, in his own teaching ministry, tells two parables, two stories in the Gospel of Luke that are actually shocking at the implications of what prayer does and how we ought to pray. So we ought to pray. Our text this morning is one of those passages telling us we ought to pray. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 5 as we near the end of our study through this great little epistle. Lord willing, next Sunday we will conclude our look at 1 John. But this morning our text is verses 14 through 17 of chapter 5. So I invite you to follow along with me as I read those verses. 1 John 5 verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. John, like all the New Testament writers, believed in the importance of prayer. Therefore, he addressed the topic several times throughout his letter. Back in chapter 1, he talked about prayer, even though he didn't use the specific word, when he gave instructions about the necessity of confessing our sins to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Obviously, the way we confess our sins is in or through prayer. So chapter 1, verse 9 is a statement about prayer. Then at the end of chapter 3, John addressed the subject of prayer again, as we'll see In just a few moments. And then again, here at the end of chapter 5, he speaks to the subject of prayer in conclusion, in the conclusion of his letter. So, chapter 1 talks about prayer, chapter 3 talks about prayer, and chapter 5 talks about prayer. Of those three sections, this one here in chapter 5 is the longest. Here, John has more to say about prayer than he did earlier. In his letter, he mention, mentions the subject in chapter one and he mentions it again in chapter three, but he doesn't really give a lot of teaching about it. This section here in chapter five is his most instructive or extensive instruction on the matter. So, with that in mind, let's see what the Holy Spirit guided him to say or to write. Notice how he begins this brief little section on prayer. Verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This statement, my John, is basically a commentary on what Jesus had to say about prayer in the Upper Room Discourse. As we have seen many times in our trek through 1 John, John was greatly impacted by the teaching of Jesus, and he often reiterated what Jesus taught by saying it in a different way. That's what he does here in verse 14, and it helps us understand the statement of Jesus in John 14, verses 13 and 14, where he said, "...and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do." that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those promises by Jesus, if we don't notice the qualifiers, sound completely open-ended. Of course, those statements aren't open-ended promises because Jesus wasn't saying, for example, that if we want a new car, just ask for it and we'll get it, or if we want a new wardrobe, just ask for it and we'll get it. Jesus qualified his promise with phrases like in my name that is consistent with who I am and and what I have purposed and phrases like that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But it's easy for us to skip over those statements without giving thought to them and grasping their meaning. Therefore, John words it in a different way here by saying if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. That reminds us that our prayer should be directed by what we know is the Lord's will and by what we can, to the best of our ability, determine is the Lord's will. That is what should focus our prayers. As I mentioned a moment ago, back in chapter 3, John has already touched on the issue of prayer. Back up there with me just to remind us of what John has already said. Here in chapter 3, in this section of the the letter, John is listing some of the benefits we enjoy when we obey God's command to love his people. One of those benefits is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 22, where he says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is one of the benefits of obeying the commands of God to love his people. We know that the Lord is hearing and answering our prayers. When John refers to his commandments here in this verse, and when he mentions doing those things that are pleasing in his sight, it is clear from the context that he is talking about the commandments to love the people of God, and that is what is pleasing in God's sight. Of course, there are other things that are pleasing in God's sight, but in this context, that is the specific focus. When we live that way, God is pleased to answer our prayers. By the way, this isn't the only place in Scripture where we are told that how we relate to other people affects God's reception of our prayers. For example, 1 Peter 3.7 says that the way we husbands relate to our wives, has an effect on our prayers being answered. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them, that is, with your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, listen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Our prayers are hindered when we don't treat people like God wants us to treat people. I mean, think about it. Think about the contradiction it is when we go to the Lord in prayer and we say something like this, Lord, I bring my need before you and ask that you would grant me grace. But at the same time, we are being ungracious or unloving toward believers, other believers, or even our spouse. Do you think the Lord is going to be inclined to answer our prayers? The obvious answer is no. We can't disconnect our horizontal relationships from our vertical relationship. In other words, if we aren't behaving properly in our human relationships by showing love, by showing grace to others, then we shouldn't expect the Lord to hear our prayers. This ought to be obvious. But I know for a fact in shepherding people that there are Christians who just don't make the connection. They are unkind, or unthoughtful, or ungracious, or mean, or rude, or inconsiderate of others around them. And yet they wonder why their prayers don't seem to be answered. Maybe it comes right back to John's statement here. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. When John says, and whatever we ask... Here in chapter 3, verse 22, it's important to keep in mind other passages of Scripture that give us other guidelines about prayer. We are, for example, to pray according to His will and ask as Jesus did when He said, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but Yours be done. When we pray according to the Lord's will and when we are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are loving others as God commands, we can have confidence that the Lord is pleased to answer our prayers. That is something that John has already taught us about prayer in chapter 3. Now he adds more in chapter 5. Let's go back to our text there in chapter 5. So he says in verse 15, And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. John is continuing his thought from verse 14. So it's important that we don't disconnect the two in our reading of the verses separately. If we do, we can get a skewed perspective of prayer. Prayer is not merely to get whatever we want. Prayer is to ask the Lord for petitions that we believe are according to His will. After all, that is really what is best for us. Sometimes we think we know what is best, but because of our limited perspective, our limited understanding... We really don't know what is best. Hopefully, beloved, there have been times in your life when you thanked God for unanswered prayer. What I mean is, there have probably been times in your life when you prayed for something. Maybe you prayed fervently for something that didn't happen. And sometime after the fact, you realize that you are really glad it didn't happen. So make sure that you don't only thank God for answered prayer. Also thank Him for unanswered prayer. God answers our prayers and gives us what is truly best. Let me illustrate this further from Matthew chapter 7, what Jesus said about this subject. Back up to the very first gospel account, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount said, ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. It is wonderful to hear Jesus say that making requests of God is appropriate. And it is very encouraging to hear him say that those who ask, receive, receive. But if we stop there, beloved, if we stop there, we miss what may be the greatest promise on prayer in Scripture. Notice verse 9. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The point of those statements by our Lord Is that God will not give us something that is harmful to us, even if we ask intensely and often. God will only give that which is truly and ultimately good. It is great news to hear that the Creator of the universe does not allow his judgment to be overruled by our judgment. My prayers do not thwart his wisdom. We are exhorted to communicate our thoughts and our desires to our Lord. If we think something is good, we may ask for it. In fact, God is the first person we should ask, since he is the first cause for every good thing. But God knows our needs better than we do, and he knows future events much better than we do. If God knows that what we are asking for will not really be good for us ultimately or in the long run, He will not give it. Instead, He will give us what is truly good. Our requests will not cause God to be the author of harm to us. He will give only what is truly good. Let me say it another way. Our blindness does not make God nearsighted. This is a great promise. I don't want God to limit himself to my vision. Do you? So make sure that you thank God for unanswered prayer and not only for answered prayer. Now back to our text in 1 John chapter 5. So John has been talking about prayer in general in verses 14 and 15. And now he zeroes in on a specific area or focus of prayer. He talks about praying for a brother or sister in Christ who is involved in sin or who is wandering from the Lord, wandering into sin. Notice how he makes the connection. He's been talking about prayer in general. Now, verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, He will ask, and he, this he should be capitalized, because now he's talking about God. He will ask, the the, the Christian will ask, will pray, and he, the Lord, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now maybe when I read that earlier, you thought to yourself, what in the world is John talking about here? Why would John say something like this? Probably because he was well aware of the fact that there were believers in his day who were dying as a result of choosing to sin. If you've read the New Testament much at all, you know this seems to have been a fairly common occurrence in the first century. For example, Ananias and Sapphira died because of their hypocrisy and lying to the Holy Spirit. That's recorded in Acts chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 11, as I mentioned back at the beginning of our service, uh, we have reference to those who are being chastened with sickness and even death because of the way they were dishonoring the Lord's table. James 5.20 refers to turning someone from the error of his way and saving him from death. So it was not uncommon for believers to be chastened by the Lord even unto death if they were straying from the truth and not coming back. Now maybe you are wondering why that doesn't seem to happen as often today as it did back then. That's a natural or normal question to consider. Since Scripture doesn't specifically tell us, we can only take an educated guess. Here's my theory. The Old Testament record seems to display a similar pattern. What I mean is, there was a period of time in which it seems that God himself intervened directly, quickly, to chasten his people and urge them to take sin seriously. But as time went on, he left that responsibility with the prophets and the leaders of Israel. Which is why they wrote so much and preached so much and so forth, to call people to repentance. Just because he didn't continue to step in quickly with chastening acts of judgment doesn't mean that he began to take sin less seriously, but he shifted the emphasis to his word being the means by which he warned people and exhorted people. In a similar way, during the New Testament time, during the time of the New Testament, it was not uncommon for the Lord himself to step into the picture quickly to exercise chastening acts of judgment among his people, as I mentioned in the examples a moment ago. But as time went on in the New Testament, and in the New Testament era, and as, as the New Testament was completed, it seems that the Lord didn't do that as often, and doesn't do that as often. Instead, his word is the means by which he warns us and exhorts us. But in John's day... The word wasn't completed yet. Most people didn't have a copy of Scripture for themselves. Oh, maybe they had a copy of Ephesians, or maybe they had a copy of Mark, but they didn't have what we would call the New Testament all pulled together, and they didn't have access to that. So there were occasions when the Lord chastened His people even to the point of death. Since that was the case, here in verse 16, John told his readers to pray for a brother or sister who is wandering from the truth because they just might be saving that person's life. John says, if you see your brother or sister in Christ beginning to wander into sin, wander from the truth, pray for him. You might save his life. If the Lord has extended mercy so as not to take the person's life, you need to pray for him or her, who knows, he or she might be pushing the envelope, maybe be right on the edge of, of pushing the issue, and God is about to chasten that believer with death, you might save that person's life. Then John adds the last two sentences of verse 16. He says, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. What is John talking about here? First of all, he reminds his readers that there is sin leading to death. There are times when God, for his own sovereign reasons and purposes, decides that it would be best to take the life of one of his children who is involved in sin. Now be careful here. John doesn't have have in mind a specific sin like murder or adultery or stealing because if he did have something in mind, he would have stated it. But he doesn't state it because the issue isn't a specific sin, like homosexuality or covetousness. The issue is God's own determination that it is necessary to discipline unto death. Then John adds the last sentence. He says, I do not say that he should pray about that. With that comment, John is basically saying that there's no use praying for someone after he's dead. If God chooses to chasten a believer with death, there's no point in praying for that person after he or she is gone. This may sound silly to you if you have a very good grasp of Scripture and understand what Scripture teaches about prayer and about the afterlife. It may sound silly to you, but it is a fact that there are people who believe, many people who believe, that there is some benefit in praying for people who are already dead. There are many, many people who believe that inaccuracy. The Bible is is completely against that idea, and this is another verse that could be used as proof. Pray for your brother in Christ. Pray for your sister in Christ if you see him or her involved in sin, because he might be getting close to the point where the Lord will choose to end his life. If that happens, there's no reason to pray for him any longer. He's gone to be with the Lord. It's done. No use praying for him any longer. As you can imagine, it would be very easy for people to hear this and assume, wrongly assume that John is saying some sins are really bad and some sins are no big deal. It would be very easy to draw that wrong conclusion. Some sins are so bad that the Lord may choose to end your life, but if you get involved in sin and you don't die, then that means your particular sin is not that serious. That's what readers might conclude wrongly, which is why John adds the next verse. Anticipating what people might think wrongly or the path they may go down, he says, verse 17, he's quick to add this, All unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. John makes this clarifying statement because he doesn't want us to start ranking sins by saying some are mortal and some are venial and that kind of nonsense. No, all unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And all sin deserves death. But the Lord is very merciful. All sin is wrong and grievous. But for reasons known only to the Lord himself, there were some sins that resulted in the Lord's chastening unto death, and there were some that did not. Let me illustrate this by having us turn back to Acts chapter 5, a passage I mentioned a moment ago, Acts chapter 5. After the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have the continued unfolding history of the church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. The first 11 verses of this chapter provide us with a graphic illustration of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we pretend to be what we are not. It's important that we understand that definition. Hypocrisy is not, please hear me, hypocrisy is not failure to be all that we want to be or should be as Christians. We all fall short of that. All of us. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. That is what is illustrated in the opening verses of Acts 5. The background of this story is found in verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4. So let me back up there and read that to you. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Barnabas did that to serve and to minister to people's needs, especially in this time of of famine and difficulty. He did it for that purpose, not to be noticed. His actions were exemplary, but he didn't do it to be noticed. He did it with the pure motive of love, and he was noticed. We know that because years later when Luke, Dr. Luke, wrote this this account, he heard about what Barnabas had done, and therefore he included it in the record. So it's safe to assume that the sacrificial gift of Barnabas was noticed by many people in the church. That leads us to this story here in chapter 5. It says, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. This is exactly what Barnabas had done. He sold a possession and gave the money to the apostles to distribute as they saw the need. So there's no problem at this point in the story, but we can't see the heart. And Ananias didn't have the same heart motive as Barnabas. That's why the verse begins with a strong contrast in the word but. Barnabas did this, but... Ananias did this. The actions were the same, but there was a huge difference in the motive and the attitude. By the way, the name Ananias means God is gracious, but he's about to learn that God is also holy. The name Sapphira means beautiful, but unfortunately that wasn't the way her heart was before the Lord. Verse 2 tells us, "...and he kept back part of the proceeds," his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to emphasize something. I want to emphasize here that the problem was not, underline that in your mind, was not the fact that Ananias didn't give all the money, as Peter will explain in a moment. The problem was that he pretended to give all the proceeds. He was being hypocritical. He wanted to make a name for himself and a profit for himself at the same time. He wanted some self-glory and some financial profit, and he thought he had found a way to get both. Ananias pretended to give all the proceeds from the sale of his land, and he was doing it to be seen of men. And his wife, Sapphira, went right along with it. Ananias kept back part of the proceeds, but he pretended a greater degree of devotion to the Lord than he really possessed. I wonder how many of us have done that before, pretending a greater degree of devotion to the Lord than we really possess. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself?" Ananias bought the lie of Satan and ended up trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. The fact that he lied to God probably indicates that he had told the Lord that he was going to give all the proceeds. Lord, help me sell this piece of land. And when you do, Lord, I'm going to give all the proceeds. But then he changed his mind and tried to be deceitful about it. Maybe he got more for the land than he expected. Who knows? But the important thing is that he lied about giving all to the Lord. Verse 4 while it remained, was it not your own? In other words, you didn't have to sell it. It wasn't ob- an obligation from God. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? You didn't have to give everything. But why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. You see, their sin was not robbing God of money, though that is a sin we can commit. Their sin was robbing God of glory. Glory. They were not required to sell their property. When they did, they were not required to give 100% of it to the Lord. But their lust for self-glory and their lie to appear more spiritual than they really were by pretending to give all is what God judged so severely. Verse 5, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Some people are shocked when they read that God killed Ananias because of lying about his giving. But that shows you how seriously God takes lying, deception, and hypocrisy. And the result was exactly what God wanted, great fear. God wants us, beloved, God wants us to take him seriously. To not be casual, nonchalant. God wants us to take sin seriously seriously. There is a healthy kind of fear. Granted, there is an excessive kind of fear that's, that's not healthy. But there is a healthy kind of fear. Verse 6 says, and the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. You can almost hear the grief in Peter's voice when he asked the question How is it? How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Peter was grieved that they had taken this course of action. They tested the Lord. The Bible specifically says not to do that. They tested him to see how much they could get away with before he would act. They presumed upon his goodness. That is a heinous sin. Verse 10 tells us that immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Beloved, as I said a moment ago, there is a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Scripture repeatedly. And here on this occasion, God stepped in and took the lives of two of what I believe were His children. There's no reason to believe there's nothing in the text or leading up to the text or coming off it that would lead us to believe that these weren't true believers, Ananias and Sapphira. But the Lord, for His own sovereign purposes, stepped in, ended their lives early because of their sin. So here is an example of the Lord chastening unto death, and it wasn't for something that we might consider a big sin. It wasn't for adultery or murder or homosexuality or rape. It was for lying, deception, hypocrisy. So this illustrates why John would tell his readers to pray for a brother or sister who is sinning. Of course, we know from what Jesus said in Matthew 18 that that we are not only to pray for our brother and sister. Yes, we are to pray, but we also need to seek to rescue him or her by addressing the sin. But since John was talking about prayer... At the end of his letter, he used the occasion to mention a specific direction of prayer, and that is praying for a brother or sister who is sinning. Now, let's not get so focused on that issue that we fail to remember the big picture. John's desire near the end of his letter was to encourage us to pray and to encourage us with a reminder that God hears our prayers. That's why I titled this message, Confidence in Prayer. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous woman is powerful and effective. Earlier I alluded to two stories or two parables that Jesus told about prayer, and I mentioned that they were shocking. Let me just uh, paraphrase them for you, and you'll see what I mean. Jesus told a story once about a man who came to the house of his friend, And he began to knock on the door of his friend, saying, I've had visitors come. I don't have any food. Give me some bread for my visitors who have come. And the man inside said, go away. I'm in bed. My whole family's with me. And that day, you, you know, for warmth, everybody slept together often. My kids are in bed with me. Go away. I can't get up and give you any bread. But Jesus said the guy outside just kept knocking and kept knocking. And eventually, the friend inside got up, not because he was a friend, Jesus said, but just to get the guy off his back. He got up and gave him some bread. And Jesus uses that as an example of prayer. Isn't that amazing? Keep knocking. Keep knocking. Maybe just to get us to shut up, the Lord will answer a prayer. That's, that's a shocking parable. The other one was of an unjust judge where a woman came to this judge and, and, and Jesus said he was an unjust, unrighteous. And this woman who had been wrong came pleading, intervened for me, step into my case. And the judge said, I don't care about God. I don't care about man. But this woman wearies me with her coming. I can't get her off my back. So I'll step in and resolve her case just to get her to be quiet. Jesus used that as an example of prayer. Keep praying, Jesus said. Keep praying. Prayer does make a difference. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous woman is powerful and effective. Beloved, don't feel like you have to figure out how prayer works before you practice it. Take God at His word and pray. And when you pray, don't get so focused on your own needs that you fail to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need the prayers of one another. So as John closes out his letter, he tells us two things. Pray and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those exhortations are just as relevant and just as timely for us today as they were to John's readers in the first century. Pray and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's bow together as we do that now. Father, thank you so much for the resource of prayer. We we don't understand how it works. We don't. Because we know in your word, we are told many times that our God is in heaven, he does what he pleases. You work all things according to the counsel of your will. You you have a plan. You're going to work out your plan. And it is certain no one can change your hand, stay your hand. No one can prohibit you from doing what you're going to do. You will carry out your perfect will. It is certain. It is fixed. And yet, on the other hand, we are told repeatedly to pray. And as I mentioned in closing, Jesus even on occasion would use some stories that would seem bizarre to us that we probably would not have used to illustrate prayer, and yet he felt completely free to use those stories to illustrate prayer. So we should pray. We shouldn't allow our logic, our human logic, to tie us up in knots and say, well, God knows anyway, and God knows what he's going to do, so what does it matter? Why pray? Father, remind us that the answer to the question of why pray is because you tell us to pray. We ought to pray. And when we pray, we should not be so focused on our own needs, our own wants, that we fail to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ, those in your family. You have given us this resource not merely for our own purposes, our own selfish reasons, but you've given us this so that we can pray for one another. Make us mindful of one another, conscious of one another, one another's needs, one another's hurts, one another's sorrows so that we pray for one another, hold up one another. We need the prayers of each other. So, Father, we thank you this morning that you do affirm repeatedly in your word that you hear, that it does matter to you. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, casting all our care upon you, for you care for us. It does matter to you. Thank you that we can pray, we can bring our own requests before you, our own burdens before you, and that we can bring our requests for our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in closing, we want to ask that if there's anyone gathered here with us this morning who does not know you as Father, we would ask that this very moment he or she would pray, would pray to you and ask for your forgiveness, ask for your salvation, ask Jesus Christ to come into his or her life to be personal Lord and Savior. May that person pray this very moment. Pray a prayer of repentance, a prayer of salvation, and enter into your family and begin a life of prayer. This we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen.